Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Lawrence, founding partner of Dutch Founders Fund, an early stage venture capital fund based in Amsterdam. Dutch Founders Fund started in 2019 and focuses on B2B marketplaces, platforms, and SaaS companies. Lawrence founded companies like Just Eat and Treat Well. As a founder turned VC, Lawrence likes founders who dream big, can scale with lightning speed, and are not afraid to fail. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Warren, welcome to the show. It's so great having you here on the European VC. Thank you. Lawrence, just before we start... I love when we have founding partners on the pod. It's a love that has grown on me. And I, I don't know why I've never asked this in the beginning of this podcast during the first year. But I want to hear the story of Dutch Founders Fund and where that name comes from. Tell us all about it. Yes, it's a, it will be a long intro, I think, Andreas. But I love long intros. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of my background. I never worked for a boss. So I started in 2000 with bringing... Uh, menus of delivery restaurants into a physical guide to the consumer. And then uh, there was a guy here in the Netherlands called Jitze, who is now founder and CEO of uh, Just Eat Takeaway. He was in a, on a venue. He said, oh, there's nothing uh, you really want to order at, uh, online. So I brought my company uh, in 2003 online. And in 2005, uh, I received a call from Aarhus, Denmark. Yes. Uh, where uh, Just Eat uh, <laughs> back in the days was working from. We had some conversations and we basically merged the companies in 2006 with each other. Together with Jesper Buche and his team, we started Just Eat in the UK. And in 2007, we got Index on board. And from there on, it was a crazy ride with Just Eat. And with, of course, IPO in 2014. I was not operationally involved in 2012. And then my wife said, um, Lawrence, we had some time sabbatical at home. There's no Just Eat for hairdressers. So, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I started a company called Treatwell, also well-known here in Europe. And it was a crazy ride. Uh, we really put gas on the company, got uh, Pitten Capital on board as an investor, but also Project A. And then we scaled the company in 18 months from zero to 150 people, but also sold the company in 18 months to a Japanese firm called Recruit Holdings. That was my second marketplace, but also already my second exit. In the meantime, my Danish friends came up with the idea of Minto in the Denmark fashion marketplace. And I started it in the Benelux and sold my share a couple of years ago to, to the bestseller group. And then I thought, okay, let's do something really, really out of my comfort zone. <laughs> I couldn't uh, sit at home and then I built a space company called Hyber. So I've got four satellites in orbit. Not sure if they're all working uh, still, but <laughs> at least we launched them. But it was tough. It was a... Uh, basically a big R&D project. And that was different, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. So from the pizzas to the hairdressers, yeah, then the code into space, that's a big step. But I could imagine a nice merger there of all four of them. So you could now get your burgers delivered by satellite and also have a hairdresser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. 
that will be perhaps the next step to combine that in, the, yeah. in one company. Yeah, I think so. That it's a natural next step. If we hadn't had the tech correction, that is what would have happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was a really fun uh, journey also. But the company is now luckily in a sales mode, in operation mode. And actually, we sold the company a couple of weeks ago to uh, with the merge also with the Swiss company. And so that was my, let's say, my entrepreneurial background. And uh, after my exits at uh, Just Eat and Treat Well, I did uh, some angel investments. And then uh, there was a guy here in the Netherlands, which is now our cornerstone investor. We did some co-investments with him. He could bring in uh, 10 euros and we could bring in 1 euro each. So those, let's say, joint investments went really, really well. And then his family fund basically said, okay, let's industrialize this because I like what you're seeing in the market. A little bit crazy companies, strange companies that even nowadays when people look at their, at their portfolio, said there's a company called Fintis Cashco, uh, they really don't get it. <laughs> Those is one of the best performing companies in the portfolio. So that, yeah. this, this angle, again, I think I'm sure we'll come back on that later, is also where we like to play, something different. Let's explore that further because what is it about different and, you know, to the audience, they couldn't see it, but you did that kind of small thing with your hands showing that it's different and not in different as in differentiated only, but also different as in different take and different kind of uh, edginess to them. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit edgy. I'm not scared. When I was scared, I wouldn't, let's say, start a company in space or whatever. So I like <laughs> some crazy ideas, but also crazy markets. I think when you always, let's say, look on a, let's say, conservative level to, to companies, I, you will never find that, that raw diamonds. Yeah. So I like to have this angle, which is a bit strange. And so it's basically contra on what the market is doing. Could I challenge you to say one business that you would say that was a very contrarian bet when you took it back then, but yeah. now it looks like it's okay, that's maybe make sense <laughs> yeah yeah so it's basically it's a, the company is called vintage cash cow which from the outside looks like a, a pawn shop basically <laughs> we mine old vintage items from people's homes yeah. and we assess them and appraise them and then yeah. basically we get the gold out of it and the rest we sell in group items on big auctions or on ebay And it's hard to scale. We've got 30,000 square meter in Leeds, but the company is really, really growing so fast and so profitable. This also due to the name Vintage Cash Cow. It also always gets kind of this negative view, but it's one of the beauties in the, in the portfolio. A lot of VCs are a little bit scared to have with vintage items. It's not auditable because there is no EA encode on the items, there is old items. With now with embedding technology like AI, with a kind of a warehouse, and it's getting really, really, really interesting. But also playing on a, on arbitrage with items from the UK. We're selling in, for example, China. There's an arbitrage of times three, sometimes times four on those items. Yeah. I have a good friend who is selling uh, vintage Danish furniture to Japanese people. Yeah. <laughs> Making a killing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, why, why so complex? Make it simple. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Just to stay on the profile of you and the rest of the team, because you're called Dutch Founders Fund, and that's not only, it's not apostrophe over the R, there's, uh, there's if anything, an apostrophe over the S, so it's been plural. So tell us a bit more about the rest of the team. Who are you? 
Yeah, yeah. So started this uh, investments with our cornerstone investor. One of them is Bas Behrens, who was the founder and CEO of WeTransfer, of course, well-known. My other partner is Patrick Kersemakers, who was a founder of Funk, the, one of the biggest e-commerce sites here in the Netherlands. He sold the company a couple of years ago. And Hidde Hoogkarspol, who was, let's say, my partner and founded some foundations and more PE background. But later on, he built some crazy and really, really cool foundations for children. Uh, so with the four of us, we started, and um, now also Remco Vizante, old VP at Booking.com, Salando, but also advisor to the CEO at Vinted is on board. So he brings it where we, let's say, bring in more the value of, let's say, bring it everything from zero to one. He is more on the scaling experience, so we really are complementary to each other to also support our portfolio companies along their growth. You, we tend to these days talk about founders and operators as the best VCs in the world. And just this morning, I saw Sifted praise another founder-led fund that is coming out. And we tend to still think of it as something that's new in Europe, but it's been around for a while. You're one of them that has been around for a while. What do you think about the movement? Where do you see that the strengths, the weaknesses, and also just in general, where do you see the VC landscape now versus earlier? Yeah, so, of course, I think it's a good trend. And I think, especially before, a couple of months ago, founders were, let's say, on the streets, not with a big sign of, I need money, but I need support. That's basically where also the trend is coming from, that they need more operational support. And basically, we we got, let's say, to go from the operations side to the investment side. My experience with Project A, who was backer at my Treatwell company, that really helped me as a founder. So I wanted to offer that also because it's it's not only the idea, it's the execution. And I just eat. There was one line item that really makes the difference eventually. So those operators have got those tactics, those learnings. They can bring in the company straight away. But there's also a downside of being only an operator. Eh? Me as a person, I'm so opportunistic. And I think everybody has got the chance. Every idea is a good idea and somebody spent time on it. So I, I feel this energy investment that founder put it in something. Alongside me and alongside my partners, we have got a, an investment team that has, let's say, less this emotional click. And I think that should be a balance. Otherwise, it's going too opportunistic. And sometimes also I need somebody that puts uh, his feet on the brake and have this view on more a conservative view. So it's, it's fine to have all operators on board, but you also have to manage it as a fund. Otherwise, you're going into the wrong direction. I actually want to take something that you just said about just eat the one line item that makes yeah. a difference. And I'd love to ask you to expand a bit on that story. Yeah. But from the perspective of what differentiates you, the Founders Fund, from... The other many other funds out there, and particularly the other funds in Europe, are also doing marketplaces. Yeah, so this one, one line item, uh, David, is uh, was basically commercial overrides. Okay? So instead of focusing only those commissions, we are take weight on those orders. We got commercial overrides, list promotions, positions on the listings, but also every restaurant had to, had to have a sign up fee and a yearly fee. So when you looked at the review, I think only 60% was eventually a take rate and 40% came from all, the, all those other review lines. So 
with this in mind, we differentiate from, let's say, other marketplace investors. We have got very good peers in focusing on those marketplaces in Europe. We have most of the time the same view on companies. So we all like the same marketplaces on the same industries. Eh? Because when you're a good investor, you know that the marketplace needs a fragmented sell and a buy side. I think we have this, this different angle on, let's say, the view on those companies, how we can, let's say, in board meetings, but also, let's say, next to the board meetings, an eight-hour sessions together with these founders, we call it a kind of a washing street, to go really, 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 really deep. And there, you need eight hours to find these nitty-gritty details in the business gates that can differentiate you from any competition out there. I think that feeling that we can bring, that energy that we can bring on the table, and we do it ourselves, eh? we don't outsource it, we do it ourselves. I think that is the real differentiator. You don't have Bing to do it? <laughs> no, 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 no. And that's, again, more for the from the zero to one goals. And therefore, we also, let's say, invest in this pre-seed space where we feel comfortable. Later stage is just not where we, let's say, can bring the real value. I think that's more the very, very early stage. I'd love to ask you, Lawrence, to give us kind of the um, investment thesis pitch of the Challengers Fund. Because what I'd love to also understand is, you know, you're in Fund 2, you have somewhat of a track record. So I'd also love to ask you about LP perception of your thesis and how it's evolved over time. But I think that for our audience, it's really important to clarify, okay, what is that thesis first and then go that route. To a little bit history there, Fund 1 was a very small fund of 17 million. There we tried things out and really yep. was our learning curve. Eh? Like, like you're building your company, it was basically trial and error. And we found out that we really have to focus on, on something that we really know and we can really bring value. So Fund 2 was really a marketplace investor. We want to become a marketplace investor. Not only one of the few, no, we want to become the best marketplace investor in the world. So we also told our LPs, which are by the way, all entrepreneurs, we've got uh, over 100 LPs in our funds, so we don't have any institutional money on board. And that also, let's say, is a signal that we, as a partner, as a, as a GP, we can move fast. Yeah? Of course, we have our processes, but we also need to have some speed, but also need the freedom to, let's say, back sometimes a pretty odd companies. So our thesis is marketplace investor in mainly our tiers is UK, the Netherlands, in Germany, in B2B marketplaces, big industries that are getting disrupted, when we are marketplace is put it on top of a traditional market and then create a frictionless experience on both of the sides. Then our second tier is, which we've done lately, we did last three investments, one in Dubai and two in Egypt, is focused on a MENA region, that is our tier two, and the third tier is, let's say, the CEE region where marketplaces can really make impact straight away. So focus on B2B marketplaces or B2B2C marketplaces and where the company is kind of a, or the teams has the ability to build a frictionless experience. So we focus on more product-led founders than the sales entrepreneurs. And we have them a lot here in the Netherlands, but it's not always good on, let's say, building this frictionless experience. Building marketplace is more execution risk than a, than a technology risk, but it's technology risk, but it needs a product is a key. That's very interesting that you say that because that's always the partner team that you have is is best suited to deal with that execution risk and help founders deal with exactly that execution risk. Exactly. And what I wanted to ask you on top of that is even your LP base is quite interesting from that perspective. How do you extract value from that LP base considering that? 
Yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot. We did an investment in Egypt, and yesterday, one of our, one of our LPs, we sent almost weekly some information about our trips, our meetings with our LPs, which is also quite rare. And then he, he reached out to us yesterday, okay, I've got this and this and this. I sold my company to the biggest car spare parts company in the world. Today, I have a meeting, and I think the next week, we already have, let's say, access to kind of assets that really can help this company. So it's a, a very, very informal network where we can tap in straight away. We have them all on the WhatsApp, but also, let's say, this informalness, I think that is close to my heart, this culture, but also, let's say, that also bring our LPs fast in action. So I like informal, but professional. That's kind of balance. Yep. Yep. Many say that probably the best number of LPs in any fund, whatever the size, maybe except for the mega fund, is somewhere around 25, 30. You don't want too many. You've got 100. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, but also a lot to manage. And we deliberately said when we open this fund, it should also be accessible for more people, investing in VC funds. So when you now go to the tier one, you need at least SLP, perhaps 1 million, perhaps 5 million in PE. They ask here in the Netherlands, you need to bring in at least 5 million or 10 million, otherwise you don't get any, any allocation. We said, okay, we want to have this accessible for also a broader public. So we have also a lot of LPs that hasn't have, let's say, any experience in investing in VCs. And we really want to grow the ecosystem. We should also open this with lower tickets. And that's not, not always beneficial for us as a firm because it, it's a lot of work. Uh, instead of uh, hiring and renting out a venue, which costs 1000 now we have to pay 5000 to accommodate all those LPs uh, on our LP day. Anyway, we like that. We like also density that culture, but it also brings a lot of value because we always have somebody that can really help us also assessing future portfolio companies. Lawrence, we're building LP syndicates, operate LP syndicates that allow anyone in the ecosystem to invest into the VC funds that we're bagging at a minimum tickets of a thousand euros. <laughs> so that, yeah. that is basically what we do together with this podcast and a bunch of community events and so on. So this could sound like we just set you up for the perfect sales speech of what we do. Boris yeah, yeah. did not know. He wasn't privy to the information. No, but that was where this went. Yeah, but let's say on a direct LP in a, in a particular place. But anyway, I really like, let's say, this kind of trends. I think it's good for everybody. Exactly. And more engagement with public because I think there's a big shift sometimes how traditional public looks at VCs or at startups in general. So I think we can really bring those people a lot of information. So they find these guys, oh, these are guys in, in Amsterdam driving on a uh, cool bike. So I think we have to get rid of that uh, view. I'd love to ask you, this is actually a question that David and I have been pondering a bit, you know, thinking about our LP makeup. So your investors, I'm guessing that many of them have more angel investments done than they have fund investments. Yeah. From a uh, asset allocation perspective, that might not be the best strategy <laughs> to be heavily exposed to single companies and not too much to the broad VC asset class. I'd love to hear how you think that your LP base thinks about using your fund. I'm super curious. So, of course, we have a lot of LPs that basically have chosen to back us because they had this very, uh, they came up with me, I've got here 10 portfolio companies, Lawrence, can you help me? <laughs> For them, it's already a hassle. So you can really see having this direct investment as angels, especially when you're coming, let's say, from a property uh, business or whatever, it's really tough. So basically, uh, what we do is uh, they outsource everything to us. But because of this 
learnings they already have with this direct investments, they also better understand us. So I think that's nice. The only problem is that they sometimes want to bring in uh, the portfolio companies that they cannot be funded, uh, they bring to to us, uh, please fund, because I also invested in you, you need to invest in this. But of course, we are (laughs) quite strict in in our our thesis there. No, no, but that's, of course, that's part of it, right? There will be that tension around that type of case, right? Yeah. But there are always risks when when there's connections. There's also, uh, you know, connections to manage. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also sometimes there's a problem with these guys are have been in industries for 30 years. So when we ask them to, uh, their view about a certain industry, they normally say, this will not work. Eh? But then again, this disruption, are they innovative enough? Eh? When I just eat, ah, this will not work, I've got my, uh, my own uh, pizza delivery in my phone. Hairdressers, now that will not work, I've got, I always go to my same hairdressers. So this is also hard. Also, when we ask, this kind of question, what is your view about the company? And it's negative, well, this will not work. We also have to get our really our own assessment of this company because we have a discussion with our LP here. But it's also strengthened us to make even a better, better case also to convince him that his old industry will be disrupted by this technology. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that you bring that up when you also say that you're kind of edgy and edginess does not stem from consensus at all, no, right? No, <laughs> it's, it's exactly the yeah. other. It's quite, it's quite funny that you bring that up. I find it super interesting. Lorenz, I wanted to ask you a, a slightly different question with regards to your strategy, which you talked about two interesting regions, MENA and CE. And I'd love to ask you why. <laughs> why are those the geos that you kind of highlight in your strategy and that you're looking for exciting stuff? I'd love to understand your thinking there. Yeah, we also want to balance, of course, our exposure. So we, I think it's good that we also invest some of our money in fast-growing emerging markets like the MENA region. What I notice is that the quality of the founders, in, especially in the MENA region, is, is of such a high level. Those are the old uh, guys that have worked for seven years. Salando came from Uber or Karim, or they've got a lot of experience, or the US. And now it's time, Egypt is also, of course, Egypt or Dubai, this, Egypt is a big country, so we all see this talent moving back. But because of the infrastructure there in the marketplace, you see quite very, very innovative models. For example, we invested in a company that is basically a classified business. So they are head-to-head with OLX, with Facebook Marketplace in the market. But they have found a solution to get all the pain points out of this culture. Trading is not really taking off on those through the other marketplaces. Mm. And that is a model that is developed there. It's grown so fast that it could be also used as an export product to Europe. So I think there's a lot of very special, nice angles being produced right now in those areas that we can also benefit from it, let's say, here in Europe. The talent pool is big. We invest in marketplaces that can really make impact from day one. It's not optimizing current trades of whatever. It really, really solves a really big problem right now. Third is, let's say, the markets are extremely big. Of course, not all of those markets are, let's say, on a sophisticated level, but Honestly, I think uh, this whole media region is becoming a powerhouse. Now, Saudis are, are getting friends with the Emirates, Emirati, Egypt and Israel there. I think that we become a big powerhouse there. 
So it's also a kind of a bet, eh? of course, but there's a lot of money deployed in Egypt, of course, as a really big home market. I'd love to ask you about um, dealing with cultural differences. So both from a founder perspective, specifically the MENA region, right? Founder perspective, but I also imagine you're also co-investing with local investors, I assume. Uh, so I'd love to hear your your experience there so far. Yeah, so the, the leverage is because most of the guys are at a, done a university in the US or a lot of in Germany and Switzerland. So I think from a cultural perspective, that balance that is already balanced out. Yeah. I think the quality of our co-investors uh, there is also ramping up quickly. So of course we will not go in there ourselves. We have done our DD on our co-investors in the region. So we're teaming up with now the I think the tier ones in the region like Beko. We did now two investment with them, Algebra. So we're teaming up with those guys, and they really let's say help and they really like us as an investor as a co-investor because of our marketplace experience. That's a good setup, and therefore we let's say also want to yep. go deeper and uh, deeper collaboration with those local funds also. Before uh, shifting it to Andreas for some more marketplace-focused conversation, I just want to say it's funny and I wanted to ask that question because we're actually about to, um, ah, it's going to take some time, but we are working on a, a special series called the Mina VC. Oh. Basically, we're interviewing Mina-based investors about collaborating yeah. across borders with, with the European investors. Right. And one of the names you brought up is going to be featured, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> so now let's shift this into marketplaces gears. First of all, everyone listening in aren't necessarily marketplace investors, so if you should just give us the quick bio on what is marketplaces and what is marketplaces not, and why is it that you believe that marketplaces is the right place to be betting? Basically, a marketplace is cut the middleman. Basically, there are trades all over the globe and there are so many importers, agents and exporters in certain trade lines. For example, I always give the, the example of, of a wood trade. There's a construction company that uh, is buying wood from a local uh, wholesaler. Uh, but you can discuss, okay, can this construction company can buy his wood directly from the sawmill? Eh? Then you avoid all those middlemen in between and what you then, let's say, build a marketplace on this kind of trade, what do you get? You get efficiency in the market, but also traceability in the market. So I think from one year from now, the buy side of, in this case, commodities have to report what is the origin of my product that I'm buying. With the current supply chains, it's almost undoable to have the, let's say, the data points from the origin over all those, let's say, agents input directly to the, to the demand side. You need a marketplace to embed that, but also the added services that every step in those in the current supply chain is, is bringing it, it will be done by the marketplace. So it's now easy for a marketplace to tap in a sender in a logistic solution or in a fintech solution or in an insurtech solution to get this frictionless experience. So basically, you put a screen directly in front from the buy side of the market, so the demand side. And basically, it's disrupting a few ages of trade, eh? where perhaps a coffee trader in Ethiopia said to his neighbor, okay, I need to sell this coffee. Oh, I know a guy in the village that knows a guy. So suddenly, with all this history, all those trade lines became a standard. I think now it's time to disrupt those kind of trades by putting a marketplace on top. 
I actually just shared a, a screenshot with Andreas because there's this article on your website that I found kind of funny, which is why we love the middleman. I was checking your website and, and what you said was kind of written somewhere on the website, you know, cutting the middleman and then what, we love the middleman. I was like, ah, that's interesting. What you're basically saying is that's actually also the founder profile that you love, yeah. you love to back, you know, empowering that middleman to build that stuff. I found that super cool, actually. I thought it was because the middleman uh, uh, is your margin, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, and, and then, of course, uh, again, to the, to the commercials from that, uh, by uh, doing that trade, the, the marketplace can take a portion of that trade to make it away. Does this also explain why you like the CE and, and MENA region and, and the more emerging regions? Because much of the embeddedness, you can say, we all know how to create a nice marketplace on the front end. You know, that's been done by many now. Yep. The difficult thing is actually integrating the supply chain that's behind it. And that is not best done in Denmark if you're yeah. talking about sawmills in Argentina and <laughs> Colombia. Then you better start down there and then you can always fix up a nice website afterwards. Yeah, so I generally like more demand-driven marketplaces. So, and then you see more, let's say, you see a trend like some more tendering, a lot of tendering marketplaces. And then we add supply where we know there's demand. A lot of, let's say, marketplaces that, that have been built in the last couple of years were, let's say, more supply-driven marketplaces. So uh, where people just say, okay, I've got overstock, I list it and try to find a buyer for it. It's more, we get more control over more demand-driven marketplaces. But yeah, this region is, this, for example, in the MENA region, there is a, we even hold it when I go to a car repair shop. This car repair shop has got devices and within three hours from now, he's got this spare parts to fix my car and I can pick up my car at five o'clock. For example, in Egypt, there are 35,000 car repair shops. <laughs> 35,000. And the procurement is, this guy is the half day on the phone to find the car spare. And only by automating this type of, let's say, procurement there for 35,000 car repair shops makes an incredible efficiency move. That is basically a good example why these regions are, let's say, ready yeah. to disrupt it by a marketplace. Because all those small operators in those, let's say, sub-Sahara regions, they don't have access to this software that has been they be selling here as SaaS companies here in the Western world. So there must be something, a combination of marketplace in combination with SaaS. So give them a free software to handle their shop by a calendar scheduling or whatever simple solutions, and then you can really make money on the marketplace. There it really help the society moving forward and getting, let's say, more digitized. It's funny because I tend to sometimes bash on VCs that focus on SaaS and marketplaces and that kind of thing when there's important stuff like climate that we can fix. And that's not fair at all because marketplaces is what makes many societies much, much more efficient and, and thus distributes wealth much better. Yeah, yeah. So that's totally uh, right. Once somebody said to me, Lawrence, it's hard to build a marketplace, but it's even harder to kill it. <laughs> Once you have this position in the market as a marketplace, it's extremely valuable yeah. for the long term. Again, it's hard to build a marketplace. And there's another, uh, I got it from Simon Rodman, uh, who was the founder of eBay Motors. I'm in with him on the board, one of my private investments in he said, Lawrence, they love you till they hate you. So when I'm a hotel at Booking.com, I get all those orders in, but suddenly I have to pay so much that they started hating them. So there's always the kind of a pivoting point there. Lawrence, I want to give you the option 
to choose what we should spend the last couple of minutes on. <laughs> because I could either ask you about Web3 and DAOs and how you see those impacting marketplaces, or I could ask you something that I'm sure you're likely to be just as passionate about, which is the marketplaces in European VC. So the likes of Odin, Vauban, Seedblink, and in the US, we have the dominant player of AngelList. I'll let you choose which one of those topics should we talk about for the remainder of this episode. I think the last one, I think it's more uh, more close to my heart. Of course, I like Web3 technologies and especially NFTs with real assets as a collateral. I've built all these technology companies, but I cannot write a single line of code. So it's a little bit tougher for me <laughs> to, to, to discuss it. Now, but then for sure, let's talk about the VC ecosystem in Europe and the marketplaces that we're seeing coming up. What is your take on it? Uh, I'm sure that probably both Boban and Odin and, and the others have come across your deck as a potential investment opportunity. Yeah, so here in Europe, of course, do you want to have this particular view? Or, But I, I think in general, there's a big trend going on in, in this B2B procurement platforms for shops. Yeah? I've been in Italy and it was really nice to see all these artisan marketplaces that uh, there are three or four already now in Italy where they have in Italy, of course, those really nice products that go to sale and putting a marketplace on top. But it's more kind of e-commerce, e-commerce marketplaces. So I think my best example of a very, very clever marketplace that's being built here in Europe is Shootflix. Speed of aspect, Shootflix, where they just have a marketplace to sell sand and gravel. They did it so clever. They built this first marketplace for type of trucks that can really handle sand. We can transport sand in, in other, other trucks than those. And that was really, really clever done. I think that is my best example of, of one of well-executed, also from a marketing perspective, marketplace. I really like AI-driven marketplaces. So you see more and more marketplaces in Europe that really scraping basically demand and putting it in front of the, of the sales side of the markets. There were marketplaces in those areas, but they're now being disrupted by AI-driven marketplaces. And what I think is a really cool trend is eight years ago, there was Auto Eint, uh, we buy Edicar.com. Now you see a company like Motorway is eight years after Auto Eint, and they're basically disrupting that model because inspection technology, me as a consumer can inspect my car and can auction it directly to the buy side of the market. So I think it's funny to see that only eight years old companies like Auto Eins and We Buy Any Car and all those kind of initiatives are now being disrupted by technology and it's called inspection technology. I think it's what we will see more and more that uh, slowly the consumers with this handheld that can be used as an inspection technology partner are disrupting scales. Lawrence, with that, we are running out of time. And as you know, or I hope you know, <laughs> we always end the episodes with a quick fire round. The quick fire round is when we ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. I've actually been thinking I need to get a marker so people see it for this one. Uh, are you ready for the quick fire round? Yes, go on. First question, in marketplaces, generally speaking, what areas excite you the most that other people around you or other investors in the marketplaces don't really feel that excited about? Oh, tough question. Kind of event marketplace, everything that has to do with creating events. I think that is um, hard to understand as an investor to how big this market is. 
we have seen a couple of those. And, but it's also hard for me because all other VCs are ignoring it. And then um, perhaps and then I will be the stupid guy afterwards. <laughs> but uh, anyway, of course, there's this type of markets that you see rejected all over. The, and although they're in fact really good unit economics, they will fail racing. And that's unfortunate because then it will never come into the market properly. But very rare stuff at the moment. Yes, we did uh, Croatian investments, operation more in the US, but that's more an aggregator of videos of scholarships for professors that uh, do some lectures. Or That's quite rare. It's also hard for them to fund, but we, uh, hopefully we see it right. Yeah. Second question of the quick fire round is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are round and about raising across Europe? Yeah, so I think there's only one big one. Uh, and I got this tip uh, from my lawyer, who's building uh, a lot of funds globally. He said, don't raise too big funds. Rather go for more smaller funds next to each other, because uh, then you are uh, early in the journey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. that is a good argument. That's also <laughs> yeah, that's a good argument. But also, that only counts, for example, when you invest in this kind of pre-seed seed rounds. You don't want to deploy too much money, of course. With, let's say, the downturn at the moment, I think that's even more IT factor. It also put pressure on us as GPs that we don't, let's say, are, let's say, more strict in joining those with those crazy amount of rounds. Third, I love that one, actually. Third and final question of the quick fire round, and this is an easy one, is what can we expect in the future from Lawrence and Dutch Founders Fund? Yeah, so when we started this fund, we had one ambition, again, uh, to go back uh, earlier, is I think we... Uh, we want to build here a global marketplace fund that can compete and win deals all over the globe. So I think we're we're now also with our new hiring process. Perhaps a new brand will pop up soon. That's for this process because we're not a governmental investor. I think when we have done this global this rebranding, we're now building the team to become the number one in the, in the marketplace investors in the world. That is such a cool statement and absolutely what you should go for. Thanks a million, Lawrence. Okay, you will not hear that uh, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so I always had to ask this question myself when I started my company. So let's say, uh, I see it also as building a company, uh, so with a financial product, and that's how, how we look at it. And that's how we uh, also want to bring this culture in this, in this company. I absolutely believe, and I, I absolutely agree, and I, I believe that that is something that characterizes the next generation of managers, right? They're thinking of their funds as firms and companies that will grow up to be great yeah. and long live or long out the, the, the GP and so on. So yeah, I love that. Yes. Thank you guys. Thanks, David. Thanks, Andreas. Thanks so much for joining us, Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.